Okay, Psalm 107 once again. We'll pick up where we did uh, a couple of weeks ago. I was kind of tied up last Wednesday night. And uh, we're going to talk about God leveling the playing field. How would you like to uh, play on that uh, field that's shown on the picture there? Uh, sometimes it feels like that. Sometimes you're in a situation where it feels like everything's uphill. Then for a while it'll feel like maybe uh, you're doing better and it's kind of downhill and the wind's at your back. And things uh, change like that. It's, or it seems to. And sometimes when we uh, start thinking about the life that we live in the world that we live, does it seem like and feel like everything's against you? It's easy to kind of get negative and uh, defeated in a world in which we live. And we've got to refuse that. We've got to reject that because if you believe that God is sovereign, then you ought to be very optimistic. And you ought to be optimistic even about the things that the world is pessimistic about because we know there's a reason and a purpose for all of that. And we know that we serve a God who is absolutely and totally victorious and he is working all things together for our good so that involves us and we also know that he is doing everything that he has promised to do in scripture and according to his plan to wind everything down I mean this world is not going to get better and it is winding down John said that the world is passing away and so uh, where are we going? We're going up. The world is going down. We're going up. God is in us. God is working through us. And God is protecting us. And God is blessing us. And as we've looked through this psalm, we've seen the psalmist as he goes and kind of takes us back to the uh, exile, as he takes us back to those times of hardship. And then he talks about how God had also brought them out of all of that. And we uh, pick up now as we uh, read together in verse 39 verse 39 and it says when they were diminished interesting word and brought low through oppression affliction and sorrow he pours contempt on princes he pours contempt on princes and causes them to wander in the wilderness, the princes, where there is no way. Verse 41. Yet he sets the poor on high. So he's doing one thing to the rich and the powerful, doing another to those who are the oppressed, as they are called in the previous verse. He sets the poor on high, far from affliction, and makes their families like a flock. And in Bible times, you wanted a big family. And that's what that is making reference to. Verse 42. The righteous see it and rejoice. And all iniquity stops its mouth. Well, wouldn't that be nice if the righteous were rejoicing and the wicked were just unable to speak? Shutting their mouth. Right? Doesn't seem that way, but that's what's coming. Verse 43. Whoever is wise will observe these things and they will understand the loving kindness of the Lord. So how are you doing on your wisdom factor there? And that pretty well finishes up the psalm. Now, why do we call this leveling the playing field? It's because it seems like God's children throughout the history of the world 
have been kind of behind the eight ball, we might say. We have been the ones that we don't have the money, we don't have the power, we don't have the talent, we don't have any of those kind of things. We have a hard time getting the world's attention, getting them to listen to us. Our viewpoints are cast aside. We are treated like we are fools and imbeciles. We are, um, they act as though we are just completely irrelevant. Go ahead and have your little church services. Who cares is basically the way the world treats us. We see this in politics. We see this in entertainment. Man, I get so tired of seeing on TV and in movies that the person who is the hypocrite and the person who is the, the fiend, the person who is uh, you know, doing something underhanded, always ends up being somebody who claims to be a Christian, somebody who is a Bible thumper, somebody who is uh, going to church and doing those kind of things. There's always something else kind of going on. Well, the scripture here says that God is going to level the playing field one of these days, and we are going to see his victory and his power, his strength, as he exalts his people and as he shuts the mouth of those who are wicked. Well, for me, that day can't come soon enough, right? And we uh, look at this and say, even so, come Lord Jesus, because uh, we are living in times that are, as Paul said, they're perilous times. And uh, so it does us good as we look at a psalm like this and we think about some things that are coming. We think about some things that are already in the works. It's not like God says, ah, not now, I'm going to do it all later. No, it's already at work, already moving that direction. And so tonight as we talk about this, and think about all of these things that we have just read. Think about it like this. Number one, it is the nature of rulers to oppress people. Rulers don't tend to be benevolent. You know, it's interesting to look back in American history. And a guy named George Washington could have been crowned king of the United States. There's a lot of willingness to do that. It's interesting that he's the one that said no. He wasn't interested in anything like that. He actually did not even want to be the first president, but felt that it was necessary. And when they were discussing what titles do you use for a president, do you call him your excellency? That's what they called him in the military when he was commander-in-chief. Do you call him sire? Do you call him any of those kind of things? And uh, why do we call our commander-in-chief something that is kind of lackluster, really? Mr. President. That's all he gets. You know who said that? George Washington. He was the one who refused to take power. He was the one that refused to take titles. He's the one that refused to take that. Just call me Mr. President. Now, you've got to understand in 1789, when the Constitution was put into place, nobody had heard of a president. Europe didn't have presidents. Other countries didn't have presidents. You had kings, of course, and you had uh, dictators, and you had other people like that. But a president, what in the world is a president? And they actually chose that office and that title because the power is supposed to be not in the office, not in the Oval Office, which didn't exist then, but in what? 
the people, you, me. This is where the power is, supposedly. And um, you find, though, that as you look through our history, you find very few Washingtons who have been in the Oval Office. In fact, most of the presidents that we've had have worked for ways to try to gain prestige and to gain power. They've tried to find ways to where they can exalt themselves and become more and more and more imperial. I would uh, dare say that the way the presidency has been in my lifetime is not quite the way Mr. Washington envisioned it. And I would also say that we have probably had men in the White House who would take more power and rob you of more freedom, rob you of more of your tax money, if they could only get away with it. Thank the Lord for a system of checks and balances so that all the power just doesn't reside in one person or in one body. There have been people who would have done far more and far worse if they only could have had it go through Congress. And Congress stopped some of those kind of things. And uh, so we still function relatively well. But it's the nature of princes. And by princes, we mean those who are of nobility, those who have leadership, those who are entitled, those who are the ones who have the power and who rule. It is their nature to oppress. They generally don't give freedom. They take freedom. President Reagan used to say that the most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Right? He also is the one that says government doesn't solve the problem. Government is the problem. Boy, I wish we had some thinking like that now because our founders wanted to have a small, limited government that had little power so that people like us could be free to do what we feel as though we are supposed to do and what the Lord wants us to do. But that is an unusual thing. And when America was formed and when its constitution was approved, it was the only nation that was like that. It was a different nation, a unique nation, because everybody else ruled by force and by power and unfortunately, a lot of people think we invented slavery. We didn't even come close to inventing slavery. And uh, in the days in which our country was founded, that was the norm. I'm glad it's not anymore, but that was the norm. And it was basically a society where there was no middle class. There was either the imperial elites, and then there were the slaves, or the serfs, as they were called in some countries, the lower class, that type of thing. Very few, if any, people in the middle. The middle class was invented by America. And the idea and the concept of freedom, even though we didn't live up to it at the very beginning, uh, the concept was put into place, and we couldn't live in the way that we started. It had to be rectified. And so when you look and see prosperity in a middle class and those kind of things around the world... That's what God did through your nation. You ought to be glad for that and be grateful for that and learn the history. Learn the history. You can learn from the bad as well as the good. And what you'll always find is whenever depraved humanity gets a choice to have some kind of power, 
they generally, not always, but they generally drift toward what? Oppression. Ever had a bad boss? Ever had a teacher that uh, they were, thought that they were better than everybody else? You ever seen a government official take a bribe? Have you ever seen corruption or anything like that? Have you noticed that maybe over the period of your life we seem to have less freedom instead of more? Why? That's the nature of the way that the world goes. And it talks about being diminished. Have you felt diminished lately? I've known people that said, what good does it do to vote? There's so much corruption, your vote doesn't really matter. And uh, those who are going to win of the uh, corrupt, you know, folks are going to win by corruption. What good does my vote do? Have you ever heard anybody say, well, we ought to stand up against these woke corporations and let them know they're not getting any of my money. Well, that's a noble idea. But have you ever had the feeling of what good does that do? Will they even miss my money? Or anything like that. People say speak up. And to be heard. But a lot of people aren't heard. Nowadays. You've got to be politically correct. In order to be heard. And that is what the Bible speaks of here. When it talks about. When they are diminished. They're made to be nothing. They're made to feel as though they don't count. They're made to feel irrelevant. Only those that are in power. Are relevant. But people like us. What do we matter and does anybody really care about us or what we think or even sometimes about our lives? This was written in a day when a king could just send people off to war on a whim. And if they made it back, fine. If they didn't make it back, fine. He didn't really care. People were diminished. And notice how it says they were brought low through oppression. You don't matter. You don't count. Your feelings don't count. Your opinions don't count. You've got to remember that in ancient Israel and in that world, they didn't take votes. They didn't have opinion polls. There was no Gallup. There was nothing like that at all. Nobody cared. The opinion that mattered was only of one person, and that was whoever the ruler of the country might be. Whatever his advisors, his nobility might have thought, maybe they would have... Uh, mattered, and so uh, that's what it talks about. That's the nature of life. That's the nature of government. Brought low through oppression. Oh, and then affliction and sorrow. You know, the Bible says that when the righteous rule, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. Why? Wicked people do wicked things, and we've got to quit expecting them not to do wicked things. That's what they do. It is in their nature to do that, and that's what the psalmist is speaking of here. So who are the diminished? And uh, they are the ones that if you go back to verse 36, it mentions them as being the hungry ones. They can't even provide for their family. They don't even have enough for themselves, much less for the rest of the nation. They are diminished. They're overlooked. It doesn't really matter whether you eat or not. And that's the way the world used to be. It's the way it used to be. That's the way it is under communism. That's the way it is in socialist countries. I don't care. The elite are always going to do well. And it makes me sad because we used to go to Venezuela on mission trips. I wonder how those people that we served with are living now. 
I wonder what they think now in all of this. Well, one thing I do know is the common people in Venezuela may be having to eat roadkill and zoo animals to survive. But the government officials aren't. They're doing well. They're fat and sassy. And under communism, there would be sometimes as many as 25 million people that would starve to death because communist countries have never been able to feed themselves. But I promise you, the premier never starved to death. His family didn't starve to death. The general secretary wasn't doing that. They were living high on the hog, no matter what their people did. That's what it means to be diminished. And so the Lord is well aware of all of this, these people that are oppressed, afflicted, and sorrowing. And they're being oppressed by the princes that are mentioned there. And this has been a constant theme in the scripture. In fact, if you'll turn in your Bible to Luke 1 and look at verse 46. This is Mary's song of praise. It's called the Magnificat. And listen to this theme that comes out into all of this, showing that even at the coming of the Lord, even in Mary's pregnancy, this whole idea that is in Psalm 107 and what is in our world today is certainly very, very clear and on uh, the heart of the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Makes you think of some songs, doesn't it? For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold... From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he is mighty who has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. You know, sometimes we only read or sing enough about this that it seems to be all about Mary. But that verse that we just read tells us generation to generation. What Mary is talking about here is for us. This is the plan of God. And here's what it says as we go on. He has shown strength with his arm, and he has scattered the proud uh, in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Hear that theme? He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. And uh, then it goes on to talk about Mary remaining there with Elizabeth. But did you kind of sense a theme that the coming of Christ is going to revolutionize things? That God has it in his plan to take the high and the mighty, the oppressors, those who afflict other people, those who live high on the hog while other people starve, those who live off of the income of other people and are proud in doing it and continue to oppress, they've got a day coming. So let's talk about that. Point number two. We've seen that it's the nature of those in authority to oppress. Okay? That's why we ought to pray for them. That's why we need to vote. That's why we need to be involved in government and all of those kind of things. Number two, the accountability that they face, and that is God's judgment. If I could say anything and be heard, I would say, President Biden, you will answer to God for everything you do. If I could speak to the Senate 
I would say to all of you honorable people, you will face accountability to a sovereign God. If I could say that to the House of Representatives, if I could say that to governors, if I could say that to state legislatures, if I could say that to mayors and city council people, if I could say that to school boards, if I could say that to Supreme Court judges and other judges, your injustice and your corruption will you will face God for it and it will be answered one of these days. But they don't believe that. Most Americans don't believe that. Most people on earth don't really believe that. And that's why the teaching of evolution that we say, ah, you know, it, it's just, you know, a bunch of biologists and scientists. It doesn't really affect us. Oh, yes, it does. Because you're living in a world that thinks there is no God and there is no morality and there is no accountability for it. Now, there was a day when even people who didn't really believe in God or the Bible, they had a sense that there was a supreme being and some accountability. Folks, those days are over. People think that we're animals, we can live like animals, and when we die, we just die like an animal, and that is the end. And unfortunately, that has come into our government and governing authorities as well. They don't care because they think there is no one higher than them. We need to pray for them, and we need to remind them. I had somebody ask me not too long ago, is it okay for me to pray that someone would assassinate Vladimir Putin? Well, I would be really uncomfortable praying that. And what I said to them was, you know, instead of praying for that, why don't you pray that he gets saved? Because if he gets saved, problem solved. That's what we need to be remembering. The Bible says we are to pray for kings and all in authority, Paul told Timothy. That's because that's the answer that we have. God's people praying for government leaders, praying for Mr. Putin, praying for the guy in China who's leading that, the guy in North Vietnam, or not North Vietnam, just Vietnam now, isn't it? North Korea. Those mullahs in the Muslim countries. We ought to have them on our heart and be praying for them as well as God forgive us if we're not praying for our own leaders to come to know Christ. This is what God is saying to us. We need to understand. They do not get away. They're not going scot-free. I hear people say every once in a while, where there's no justice in the land. Well, I would kind of agree with that. At least there's a two-tiered justice system. If it's you and me, we'll face the wrath of the IRS or anything else. But there are people, the elites, who don't seem to face that. But they will. And they're going to face a higher court. Someone the other day committed suicide. I was reading about their suicide and it said they took the cowardly way out. Not if you understand your Bible. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. And so as Christians, we need to quit hanging our head and dragging our tail as though, oh, everything's against us. If you say that or think that or feel that, number one, you don't understand the God that you serve. And number two, you don't know your doctrine very well. That ought to change everything. So that's what point number two is. They're going to face judgments he pours contempt on princes 
In other words, they're so lofty and everybody thinks so well of them and they get their way. And he says, really? And with a flick of his finger, they're in the mud, being overlooked themselves and trampled on by others. He causes them to wander in the wilderness where there is no way. When you uh, think about that, I want you to think about what God showed us in the book of Daniel. And the Bible says that there was a king that thought he could rule the world. He was the head of the Babylonian Empire. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. Ever heard of him? Daniel chapter 4, if you want to follow along, verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered, he was talking to himself, by the way, and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power in a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you this is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field, and you will be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Will you say amen to the voice of God? That's the truth. That's the truth. And so when we look at the world we live in today, why are the leaders leading? Why are they in power? Because God has granted that, and they will answer to God. Don't you dare feel defeated about that. Our God reigns, and he's still in sovereign majestic control and all it takes is a word from him to topple thrones and empires and one day it is going to happen number three notice this the perspective of the eternal and by that i mean god because he's the only eternal one in verse 41 it says he sets the poor on high nobody else does nobody cares what a poor person thinks Nobody cares what the homeless think. Nobody cares what people who don't have power or wealth or money or influence or anything like that. Nobody cares what they think. And yet the psalmist says he takes the poor and sets them on high. Has he ever done that before? There was a shepherd boy who was out in the fields watching over his father's flocks. He was in an obscure little town called Bethlehem. And nobody really thought he would amount to anything until the prophet Samuel shows up at his house one day. And they were needing a king to replace the corrupt king Saul. Now, Saul hadn't gone anywhere yet, and he wasn't dead yet, but God already had it in the works. Just like he knows who the next president's going to be. He knows who the next senator's going to be. There's some little children running around. Maybe even yours. Maybe even in our nursery. Maybe in Awana tonight. That may turn out to be 
powerful people someday. And they don't come from anybody who is special. They don't come from a political dynasty. They don't come from wealth. Why? Because like David, poor people are sometimes raised to places of power. David was so little thought of, even his own father didn't think to bring David in to have Samuel look at him. And yet he was the one that was chosen to be the king of Israel and to be a forerunner of the Messiah. Can you imagine? I wonder how God's going to use you. I wonder how God's going to use your children and how he's going to use your grandchildren. You just never know. Oh, but I'm just a nobody. So was David. So was David. And look what God did to him. Because God's perspective is different. He sets the poor on high and from a, delivers them from affliction. And he makes their families like a flock. You know, it's interesting when you go back to uh, uh, Exodus. And you think about what was happening with the Egyptians as opposed to the enslaved Israelis. What was happening with the Israelis? They were multiplying so much, Pharaoh was terrified. If they joined with our enemies, we're toast. Why? Because God was blessing them and they were having babies. And that's one of the things we've been sold a bill of goods. Being told now that we need to get to zero population growth. No, that's never been the command of God. Be fruitful and multiply, the Bible says. And so uh, we, we act like though we are sovereign over the world and we can destroy the world and all that. No, we can't. That's in God's hands. And we need to remember that. We looked at that a few weeks ago. And so their families become like a flock. And what happens? The righteous see it and rejoice. We need to be looking for God. We need to be looking for what God is doing and rejoice in it instead of seeing the negative all the time. And in all iniquity stops its mouth. You know, in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verse 12, John writes, I saw the dead. And what kind of dead people did he see? Great, that's the princes, that's the powerful, that's the wealthy, that's the oppressors. Great and small, that's the poor, ordinary, everyday, garden variety person, right? And they were standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. <clears throat> and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. You know what he's saying there? There's a level playing ground when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And everybody who stands there is going to be condemned and cast into the lake of fire. Doesn't matter where you come from. Doesn't matter how powerful you were. Doesn't matter how famous you were. Doesn't matter how athletic you were. It doesn't matter what country you were in, what race you are. Doesn't matter. All of those without Christ are going to be called up. And they're going to stand before God. And they're going to stand equally before God. Judged equally before God. And equally condemned by God. There's another day coming. And God has a different perspective on all of this. When I thought about Mary's prayer, I couldn't help but think about Hannah's prayer. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10. Notice how similar it is, but it's the same theme. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. 
for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed or judged. The bows of the mighty are broken. But the feeble... Bind on strength or put on strength or armor. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. In other words, they're working for somebody else and barely making it now. But those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who had many children is barren. The Lord kills and brings to life. <clears throat> he brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. And that indeed is what her son Samuel, who would be the prophet, who would sit and eat with kings, that's what he would do. And one day, one day, Jesus is coming back, not just to take part in what the world is doing, but to take over what is going on in this world, to rule and reign as king of kings and lord of lords, and the Bible says that you are going to reign with him if you can imagine anything like that. Exalting the poor, exalting the humble, exalting the nobodies. No wonder Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the nobodies, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And we've got to see what true value is. It's not gold or silver or possessions. True value is having a saved soul, having your sins forgiven, being a part of the kingdom of God, knowing that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, knowing that when you die, you're going to take up residence in heaven, and knowing that when Jesus comes back to rule and reign on the earth, you are going to occupy a position of authority with him. Which brings us then to the last point. The reason for these things. Verse 43 in Psalm 107 says, Whoever is wise will observe these things. Are you wise? See, if you're not wise, all you see is the, what the devil's doing. If you're wise, you'll see what God is doing. They will observe these things, and they will understand the loving kindness of the Lord. I want to ask you, when you look at the war in Ukraine, what do you see? What do you see? If you're not careful, all you'll see is evil and destruction. And it is there. I'm not saying don't see that. But do you see the loving kindness of God anywhere? I heard just today that believers in Russia, in Russia, are gathering together like never before having prayer meetings 
for believers in Ukraine. You don't hear that on the news, do you? Does that bless you? Pray for your enemies, Jesus said. Whatever is going to come out of all of this, I don't know. I'm not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet, to quote Amos in the Bible. But I do know enough of the word of God to know this. When it's all said and done, Vladimir Putin loses. Okay? And we've got to think about that. And even to the point of what are American Christians doing? Russian Christians are praying for Christians in Ukraine what are American Christians doing? We ought to be praying for both. We ought to be praying for both. And we ought to be praying for the leaders. I happen to be more of a supporter of Mr. Zelensky than I am of Mr. Putin. I know you're surprised by that. Doesn't mean Mr. Zelensky's going to heaven when he dies. He's just as accountable to a holy, sovereign God as Mr. Putin is. And without Christ, he dies and spends eternity in hell. Sometimes we hear the body counts. Nobody knows who to believe. Both sides are probably inflating what they're doing for propaganda purposes. Christians, we ought to mourn and we ought to weep over every Russian soldier that dies because that's another one that is most likely going to hell. Same thing in Ukraine. Same thing when you hear about a suicide. Same thing when you hear about a drug overdose. Same thing when you hear about a car wreck that kills somebody. What about those six girls that were killed in Tishomingo the other day? I wonder if they were saved. And we have a different perspective because the purpose of all of this and the purpose of studying this and the purpose of living through all of these horrific things is because it is supposed to change us to see and to understand, the psalmist says, the loving kindness of the Lord because He is making us wise. This world is foolish. 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 But you have the wisdom of the ages in your hand if you hold a Bible. And you have the wisdom of God indwelling you through the Holy Spirit. God help us when we see everything through the same eyes that the world does. There's no excuse for that. God forgive us when we participate in what the world does. There's no excuse. We are not mere men. We are children of the most high God. It's about time we start acting like it and understanding who he is and taking up our armor and standing at our post and being ready to go to war instead of this casual Christianity that has enveloped all of us, that will serve if we feel like it, will serve if it's convenient, will serve if nobody else does, instead of saying it is an honor to serve our King. We are the ones who are here to display God's love and to display His power. And we give warning to a lost and dying world 
and to Christians who are falling into sin. We give warning to them. And we also give encouragement to those who want to do right and want to honor God. They may have been in a deep, dark place. But now they take, and if they even look God's direction, it ought to be the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that is saying, good, good for you. Come along, I'll take your hand, and I'll help you out of the pit. I'll snatch you out of the, out of the fire. I will help you get right with God. I'm not here to put you down. I'm here to lift you up. I'm not here to put you in darkness. I'm here to shine the light of truth on these things because I love you and I love God. Should we hate sin? Yes. Particularly our own. But we find ourselves so often hating other people's sins and condemning them for their sins and cherishing our own. It's got to change. And we've got to hate our own sin more than we hate anyone else's. And when we see anyone else show even an inkling of interest in getting right, we need to be there to help get that going to fan the flame in a good way in a good flame so that they get out of the pit that they're in and they know the joy of serving and the joy of knowing the Lord because what is the truth that we have tonight as we conclude to know two things number one Jesus never fails he knows what he's doing he's in control and number two, our God reigns all the time and in all situations. Heavenly Father, forgive us for the way that we watch the news. Forgive us for the way we look at politics. Forgive us for the way that we look at things going on all around the world. Because far too often we act just like the world and we see it with the same perspective of the world. God forgive us. And cleanse us. That we might look at this world. This evil, rotten, disgusting, perverted world. As an assignment from a holy God. As a mission field. To warn those who are perishing. And to encourage those who want to know you. And want to do right. Because if I understand the word of God, no one seeks after God. And if anyone appears to be interested in God, it's because of your work in their life drawing them out. May you bring us across people like that. And may you cause us to look at their life and to be a help, not a hindrance. To give them hope instead of emphasizing their helplessness. And to show them the power and the love and the grace of Almighty God. And, oh, Father, we do join tonight to pray for Christians, especially in the Ukraine and in Russia, and for all of those who are suffering, all of those who are fearful, all of those who have lost loved ones, all of those who are hungry, all of those who feel oppression and evil all over the world. Bless them. And let your church arise and pray. And then as you give us opportunities, may we walk through the open doors for your glory.
For it's in Jesus' name we pray. And if you agree with that, pray, would you just shout out an amen? amen. That's where we need and that's where we are. Okay, take your uh, newsletter out.